For some reason that we'll probably never fully understand, an extraordinary outpouring of energy began to occur around the year 1100. It was so powerful and so passionate that it transformed the way the world looked and thought about God, about justice and power, about women, love and art. This story starts with the almost unbelievable life of the woman we will come to know as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor had virtually everything this life can grant. Sunlit beauty, inherited power and wealth on a phenomenal scale. Kings as husbands, kings as sons. She lived an epic life in the middle of a whirlwind. Entangled with five mightily powerful men who fought for more than a century to control Western Europe. Surrounding them is an incredible array of people who lived in that world doing incredible things, from building stone cathedrals that streamed with sunlight, to fighting two crusades, to inventing fictional characters we still read about. We know of only a few of them, and what we do know of even these favoured few is limited by their records and our own comprehension. Come with us as we journey to meet Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry Plantagenet, Richard Lionheart, King John, and all the remarkable people surrounding them. To be in their presence is an exhilarating experience. Won't you join us? Welcome back to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story. An epic, true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Episode 9. A Continent is Set Aflame. The year is 1146. The Second Crusade would be an odd debacle. Great armies destroyed by what appear to be simply the normal setbacks of war. But that was still in the future. After Dorylaeum, after Mount Cadmos, after Antioch and Damascus. As we begin this episode, no one saw that future. Instead, hearts beat with the excitement of a great adventure, a crusade which would unquestionably lead to the victorious culmination of Christendom's 50-year-old battle with Islam. As we noted in Episode 8, crusades were arduous, frightening, dangerous, and expensive. Literally, the world wars of their age, an age that lasted some 500 years. So why go? The Christian fight against Islam, that alarming power exploding from the mysterious East, was the key reason. But there also happened to be a great many fighting men in Europe at the time, habituated to a level of interpersonal violence that even our homicidal era would find incredible. As a matter of dull, everyday routine, masters punched, kicked, and slapped workmen, husbands whipped their wives, and parents beat the living hell out of their offspring, while everyone flogged animals with anything handy, from tree branches to frayed ropes. Even the justice system of the day shared that general conviction that physical abuse was the preferred means of keeping order. Blinding and castration, beheading, burial alive, being flung over the lovely white cliffs of Dover, all were viewed in the 1100s as perfectly logical sentences. 
you didn't even have to be guilty to join the parade of the tortured. Merely to be accused was enough for trial by ordeal, where your arm was plunged into a kettle of boiling water up to the elbow and then swathed in bandages. If you had healed up three days later, things were looking up. If not, they were about to get worse. People simply took it for granted that screaming in pain was part of daily life. Going to fight the Moors was just another variation. Of course, there were other spurs to action. To nobles down on their luck, or younger sons whose prospects at home were unsatisfactory at best, war, as always, meant possible opportunity. Men who were tired of seeing the same horizon could seize this glorious chance for adventure. Others simply followed their liege lord or didn't want to be left behind when their fathers, brothers, friends, and cousins packed up for Jerusalem. And then there were the knights. We often romanticize knights as handsome gallants in gleaming armor, ready to slay dragons for the love of beautiful maidens. In reality, knights were the army rangers of their time, trained and blooded warriors. They were supposed to spend their lives driving off barbarians and taking land from each other. But by the 12th century, sadly for our knightly class, barbarians were in serious decline. It would of course happen that just as the need for protectors of the borders was ebbing, the number of landed families and their male progeny, most intending to be knights, was rising. Europe accordingly found itself with a rather large number of young men, raised from boyhood to fight, with far too much spare time on their hands. Their tendency toward getting into trouble had grown to truly worrisome proportions, rather like having too many teenaged gunslingers in a frontier town in the American West. Going on crusade thankfully gave them something useful to do outside somebody else's city walls. The church also lent some very compelling inducements to the typical crusader mix of religious piety, a fondness for armed aggression, and wanderlust. Crusaders who not only said they would go but actually lived up to that vow, as not everyone did, were promised forgiveness of their sins, which guaranteed eternal salvation. They could rely on the promise of the church's protection for family left behind so that immature heirs, defenseless wives, and marriageable daughters wouldn't find themselves under the thumb of some greedy neighbor. There were also such practical incentives as immunity from being sued after taking the cross and exemption from paying interest on debts. And so, we have Western Europe in the wake of Bernard of Clairvaux at Vézelay. He set a continent aflame, following his rapturous achievement at Vézelay with a triumphant recruiting tour of European Christendom. Bernard preaching crusade is a 21st century head of state dressed in 12th century robes, occupied with epic events, constantly called upon for weighty decisions, asked to add his celebrity and wisdom to public recruitment campaigns, expected to use his personal relationships to cajole reluctant nobles. He probably hated being forced to move at a 12th century pace.
His greatest quality, however, even outshining his prodigious energy, organizational skill, and absolute determination and personal knowledge of all the great men of his day, was his personal magnetism on a podium. He was such an emotionally powerful speaker that the cadence of his speeches as recorded by chroniclers bring to mind Shakespearean kings. To quote him, Therefore, most noble knights, let us gird on our swords, and he who has none, let him buy one. Do not forsake your king, the king of the Franks, nay, indeed, the king of heaven. His eloquence brought him immense success across Europe success that was doubled and redoubled by a steady flow of miracles at his holy hands. Chroniclers excitedly recorded that as he stumped the continent, he cured the crippled and the blind, caused the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak, drove out devils, and even raised one fortunate soul from the dead. As Bernard himself wrote proudly to Pope Eugenius, cities and castles are now empty. There is not one man for seven women. Late in the fall of 1146, after traveling and talking without rest for months, Bernard arrived in Frankfurt, even then a busy old trading town, traditionally the site where Germans met to elect the Holy Roman Emperor. The current ruler of the Germans was Conrad III. In his fifties, Conrad was the ambitious survivor of decades of political combat in a difficult part of the world, as well as a tested warrior known for his personal courage, one who had made an armed pilgrimage to the Holy Land 20 years before to help fend off Muslim raids. Still, Conrad's religious piety shouldn't be overestimated. Sharp disagreements with various popes had a considerable effect on his life. German lords had long had a close, if rocky, relationship with Rome. If fortunate enough to both be on good terms with Rome and to be elected back home to rule Germany, they would take the title Holy Roman Emperor as part of the German coronation ceremony. Conrad, however, had irritated the papacy enough over the years that he hadn't been granted that right. Despite the size and strategic importance of his country, which dominated Eastern Europe, he had to content himself with the secondary German title, King of the Romans, in recognition of his kingdom's long reach into the Italian peninsula. Conrad rarely experienced the pleasures of an idle life. In addition to his failure to see eye to eye with the Pope, internal warfare never ended across his lands. The man had a great many immediate problems on his mind, and Bernard, who had inspired thousands of Germans to take the cross, had a rare failure in Frankfurt with the King of the Romans. Conrad did not sign on. But Louis Capet of the neighboring French, sometimes German allies, often German rivals, would be leading a French army to the Holy Land. Conrad, nettled by that thought, invited Bernard to his Christmas court at Spire, a city which had existed on the banks of the Rhine since Roman days. 
Christmas at Spire would mean solemn services in the magnificent Cathedral of the Assumption and St. Stephen, a century-old basilica famed as one of the greatest buildings in all of Europe. Bernard had lost Conrad once. He didn't intend to lose him again. The churchman spent the month before he arrived in Spire working to tamp down various outbreaks of turmoil across Germany so Conrad could reasonably contemplate leaving. Then, in the echoing, candlelit vastness of the cathedral, the congregation gathered to bow their heads at the birth of the Christ child. Bernard confronted the wavering king with the imagined scene of Christ, asking him upon his death, What is there that I should have done for you and did not do? Conrad, who, given his invitation to Bernard, may have already decided he would not stay behind, reportedly wept as he made his vow to crusade. A legion of his nobles followed. Bernard had won. The Germans would fight. Let's take a pause here for a moment. A man's decision to take the cross threw his entire family into the exhausting preparations for his departure. The financial drain this put on even wealthy aristocrats was staggering. Since crusaders needed not only armor and swords, siege machines, equipment for archers, a stable full of horses and a full array of pack animals, but access to ships and wagons, tents, pots and pans, saddles, rope, clothing, bandages, prayer books, medicine, candles, bedding, and money safes. There was no good way to take food any distance and never enough time for hunting and foraging. Accordingly, one needed enough money to buy food for humans and animals at every stop along a very lengthy road. Nobles had to plan on provisioning their own fighting men, along with the essential retainers who would wash the clothes, brush the horses, and pray for one's immortal soul if the time came. Expedition leaders would need a bounty of gifts to encourage positive diplomatic relations en route. Kings had to consider the building of ports and bridges for their armies, along with fortresses to protect the folks back home. Everyone who planned to go needed means to buy all the many things that had to be acquired, packed, and moved at home, combined with all the other things that would need to be acquired on the road. At the time, paper money was non-existent. Everyone did have coinage, but not only did coins weigh a lot, they could be of dubious value beyond your own borders, so that an Aquitanian could struggle to buy something in Paris with his currency, much less in Hungary or Byzantium. As a consequence, you didn't take much of your local money. You took valuable things instead. Jewels, gold, silver ivory and anything else you owned that was worth trading was rounded up and packed in your saddlebags and trunks, so it could be exchanged later for food, fresh horses, gifts, bribes, for doctoring, or for your burial. Jonathan Riley Smith, a noted historian of the era, has noted that medieval society was not generally renowned for thrift, so raising whatever portable wealth you didn't already own meant selling pigs and timber, calling in loans, demanding support from flustered local monasteries, 
borrowing from the Jewish moneylenders, and factoring in the always popular prospect of raiding and pillaging along the way. If you belong to a guild, it might raise cash to sponsor you. If you were one of the lucky class, you could trade rights you controlled. If you had a watermill, for example, you'd give the neighborhood monastery the right to the mill's revenue for the next three years, in exchange for gold coins today. Serfdom could end for the peasant family that had somehow clawed savings out of their hard lives. A crusading lord might decide that his finances made their freedom thinkable. Lords of sufficient standing had the envied ability to simply increase taxes. As a last resort, one that you tried your best to avoid, you'd mortgage or even sell your lands. In some cases, the land trades were spectacular. During the First Crusade, the great Duke of Normandy was so anxious to afford the trip to the Holy Land that he pawned the entire country to his brother. Of course, your need to raise money was irritatingly complicated by everyone else's need to do exactly the same, with a result rather like that which could be expected if the entire population of a modern town put their houses on the market the same afternoon. Those in a position to do so took advantage, sometimes in ways that raise an eyebrow even in our era of credit cards. According to historian Christopher Tyreman, one English abbey in Norfolk charged a minimum of 133% interest on its deal with one Philip Bassett of Postwick. Mr. Bassett's family must have prayed with great fervor for his return. Indebted wives and children could end up penniless and homeless if things went badly. While you were busy grappling with finance, the rest of your household would be making clothing and tents, repairing armor, sharpening swords, looking for the best of the local horseflesh, concocting salves for wounds, building carts, and laying in a supply of parchment and ink for writing letters home. Thankfully, fur-lined garments, hunting dogs, and falcons had been prohibited, so a few things might be crossed off over crowded lists. The effort required among tens of thousands of individuals to be ready on time is astounding. We can think of this era as hopelessly primitive until we consider all that was accomplished. Every bit of it on foot or horseback. No internet, no smartphones, no social media, no airplanes, no motorized vehicles of any kind, no computerized spreadsheets updated with the flicker of some tapped keys. Sheer human thought energy, and endurance had to play the role technology would effortlessly fill today. Dozens of letters would have to be laboriously dispatched via envoys to arrange for rites of passage across foreign territory. Even fellow crusaders needed permission to travel through each other's lands. The 12th century equivalent of advancemen had to find the best guides to get through unfamiliar mountain ranges, have bridges built to carry armies over a dozen rivers, and set up markets along a route that spanned a thousand miles. A sense of what all this took by way of time and effort can be grasped by reading a summary of the travel involved in friendly marriage negotiations between two royals. No less than seven separate trips were needed between the initial offer for the bride to settlement of her dowry, 
and this was in peacetime among neighbors. If you were a lord, arrangements also had to be made for running your domain in your absence, whether that might be a single castle, an abbey with a hundred resident monks, or an entire country. This required careful thought, as even family members were not above appropriating the belongings of those who had left, sometimes in ways astoundingly audacious. Richard Lionheart would return from the Third Crusade to find that his own brother had tried to grab the English throne while Richard was battling Islam, a reality which might explain Richard being the last English monarch to leave Europe for another five centuries. The threat of being on the receiving end of such bad behavior wasn't limited to royalty. Having a family's strongest off in the Holy Land, with the odds rather stacked against their return, left everyone else at real risk. Even murder wasn't unheard of to clear new dynastic paths. The steps taken by one departing lord to protect his family during his absence, he cautiously saw to it that no less than ten witnesses signed off on the very detailed written agreement with his younger brother. If sufficiently trustworthy male relatives were scarce, competent wives could be pressed into service. As we have seen, Lady Philippa ran the Aquitaine for William IX while he went on the First Crusade in 1101. On the other hand, women presented risks of their own. One nobleman returned to the depressing reality that his heiress daughter had been forcibly wed to one of the peasants on his estate. Conrad of Germany chose an abbot named Weibald as imperial regent to rule Germany in his stead, and gained agreement from his vassals that his son would inherit if he did not return. Just in case, the little boy was crowned before his father left the country. In France, Suger stepped in as Louis' regent. Once he had reluctantly accepted that Louis truly would leave France, at least for two years, and possibly never to return at all. Suger was probably truly dismayed that Louis was going, given the worrisome state of the French succession. Louis had a daughter, of little value given French rules on royal succession, but he still had no male heir from his queen Eleanor. Meanwhile, Eleanor, queen of the French, duchess of the Aquitaine, the first royal wife to go on crusade, was making decisions about her own unprecedented journey. At Vézelay, she had reportedly shown the dramatic snap for which history has never forgotten her. But eyebrows rose at the idea that she would actually accompany the army. The chronicler who reported her dramatic pledge to crusade felt quite strongly that the flashy scene had set nothing but a bad example. Not for the first time in her life, the sniping wasn't fair. Noble women had accompanied their husbands on the First Crusade fifty years before. Saracens busily stripping European corpses after a battle found that more than one supposed soldier was a woman. It's fairly certain that Ida of Austria died while on crusade with Eleanor's grandfather. Then, too, regardless of normal rules, it would be hard to refuse Eleanor, since her vassals made up a considerable percentage of the French forces. She was the hereditary leader of the Aquitanian knights, 
the liege to whom some had pledged their personal fealty, and so she possessed the God-given right to lead them in battle. Obviously anxious to well acquit herself, she reportedly spent the months after Vézelay traveling across the Aquitaine to raise men and money, the latter by encouraging local market fairs whose profits would go toward the crusade. Given the barely dormant spark of rebellion so easily ignited between Aquitanian lords and their duke, Eleanor was remarkably successful in gaining the personal pledges of her vassals. Even old enemies with generations of animosity to look back on. Eleanor did not claim that she would fight alongside muscled knights who had spent their lives learning war. Instead, she offered the service of herself and her ladies, of which there would be some 300, to tend the wounded. But her contribution was not happily received by public opinion. It was one thing for a wife to dutifully travel in loving support of her brave husband, quite another for a queen to requisition her own army as Eleanor had, and the presence of Eleanor and her ladies amid the French army was a source of endless carping from observers, who fretted that the presence of females was wrong and bad on every level. They were occasions of sin for fighting men who were supposed to be following the fixed star of their crusader vows. They interfered with military discipline. They insisted on bringing impractical baggage that slowed everyone down. Much of what went wrong with the Second Crusade would be blamed on Alionor. She's 23 years old, the mother of nothing but a sadly unnecessary baby girl, less powerful despite her wealth than her mother-in-law had been as queen, mistrusted by the French thanks to her Aquitanian blood. She is not a legend, not yet. The Second Crusade would make her one. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author Karen Markle Nabb. A big thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again September 18th for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and now on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me.